If you have your Bibles or electronic devices, you can click to, turn to with me, Matthew chapter 5, verse 7. And so we've been in this series called Happiness is a Serious Problem. And we've been looking at this issue of happiness and what brings happiness and what doesn't bring happiness and why Americans, why do people struggle in this area of happiness. And so we've been looking at the Sermon on the Mount and specifically we've been looking at the Beatitudes. And the Beatitudes are like the intro to the, the Sermon on the Mount. It's like the... the, the uh, the preamble, if you will, to the Sermon on the Mount. Sermon on the Mount was, was, was a sermon that Jesus preached. It was his first sermon, and he's fleshing out what does it mean to be a follower of Christ, and what does it mean to walk with him. But in the preamble, in the Beatitudes, he's helping us to understand how to have happiness. Now, I don't know if you're like me, but if Jesus says, if you will do these things, you will be happy, I want to know what those things are, right? I want to figure those things out. And so Jesus started every one of the, the Beatitudes off with a statement, blessed are are happy, are, fulfilled, are, content, are, however you want to phrase that. But Jesus is talking about this issue of happiness. And so today we come to this, this, this beatitude, Matthew chapter 5, verse 7. And, I, and I'm going to give you four things. I'm going to give you four things, and they may seem small to you, but I'm going to give you four things that, that if we could put these four things in, in play in our life, not only would we be happier people, but the people around us would be blessed. The people around us would, would, would be happier. I think out of all the Beatitudes, and listen, I've, I've been studying right along with you, and I've been learning right along with you, but out of all the Beatitudes, this may be one of the Beatitudes that, that has the greatest gain relationally in your, in your happiness meter, if you will, that if you will do these things, you will be happy. And so there's a lot of people that say, you know what, I would be a happier person if I could be around this type of person. I'd be a happier person if I could be around a person that was able to show mercy. And so, so here's the beatitude in case you're wondering. Here's what the beatitude says, Matthew chapter 5, verse 7. It said, blessed are the merciful. Blessed are those that can show mercy. Blessed are those that understand what mercy is. Blessed are the merciful. For, look at this, this is, this is huge. For they will be shown mercy. You want more mercy in your life? Learn to be merciful. I mean, it's what Jesus is saying. And so there's a lot of people who say, you know what? You know what I need in my life? I need some relationships around me that understand this issue of mercy. Because if we're honest and we look at this issue of happiness, we would all probably say that a lot of times my happiness depends on the people around me. There's something about relationships, right? Relationships can be your greatest joy and they can be your greatest hurt. And with people, right? If we just understand that, when you look at this issue of people, you realize when you look at studies that people are happier when the relationships around them are healthier. But, but what Jesus tells, what Scripture tells, it starts with us. And so it's one thing, listen, it's one thing to be able to quote this beatitude, blessed are, blessed are those that show mercy for they will be shown mercy. So that's easy, right? It's easy to memorize. It's easy to talk about. Oh, guess what? It is easy to preach about. But you know what? It is another thing to apply. It is another thing to apply to your relationships. It is another thing to apply to a marriage, relationships, your coworkers, your friends, the people that you go to church with. And so when I talk about this, this issue, about this issue of showing mercy, I hope you will do the same thing that I did when I was researching and writing this sermon. I started thinking about the relationships around me. Whether it was my family, whether it's my friends, whether it's people that I go to church with, whether it's people that I serve with, I started taking these four principles and say, how would they play? Because, because we live in a time, and you know this, right? 
We live in a time when it seems like not only is the happiness meter down, but the mercy meter is down. It seems like it's becoming harder and harder for people just to show mercy to other people, especially show mercy to people they disagree with or that upset them or some of those other things, that it seems like this mercy meter is like struggling just like the happiness meter is. Oh, maybe that's the correlation. Maybe that's one of the reasons. I, Saturday night, I was, I was coming to Saturday night church, and, and on the way I was really hungry, and then I realized, you know what? All I had was a breakfast burrito. I forgot to eat lunch. I got busy, forgot to eat lunch. I'm hungry. And so I rolled into Burger King over here, and I made sure there was pickles and lettuce and tomatoes on it because that fits with my Mediterranean diet. And so uh, and that's important. And so I'm, I go inside Burger King. I'm waiting. And all of a sudden, this lady that had gone through the to-go line, to -go line and obviously they, um, they got her order wrong because she let us all know about it. And so she pulled in. She was angry. She came in. And she, like, did not extend any mercy to those people. It was horrible. She's yelling and screaming, throwing hamburgers, and, like, I only ordered two things. How hard is this, people? And then I accidentally, unfortunately, I thought it in my mind, and I said it out loud when all of a sudden this lady says, how hard is it? And she was using shame language. How hard is it to get two hamburgers right, people? And I said, I don't know. How hard is it to do just be kind? I mean, how hard it is in life just to be kind? And so when you look, yeah, you know what was hilarious? It, pr it proved out this beatitude. It said, blessed are those who show mercies for they'll be shown mercy. All I ordered was like a hamburger, and I got fries out of the deal. I got free fries. And I'm like, man, I'm speaking up more. I am I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look for rude customers, and then I'm going to take up for the employees. That's how that works. <laughs> True story. And so, but see, the world... <laughs> The world insists the way you get happy, you just happiness, you just look out for number one. You don't care about anybody else. You don't care about anybody. You just, you just work as hard as you can to get to the top. Just, to, just, just be number one. Now listen, these are some of the things, and, and for those of you that, that play golf, and maybe there's some other hobbies that are like this, but if you play golf, you know this, that there's some very small changes that you can make in the golf swing, and it will have dramatic results to your game. It can be ball position, it can be grip, it could be the way you hold your head, whether you look up or you look down, and all those. And it can be like really, really small changes. And you make those small changes, and you're going to get great results. Well, guess what? The same with this. These four things, these four truths that I'm going to give you, it may seem like minor changes or insignificant changes, but I'm telling you, in relationships, these four small things that if you and I can incorporate can, can grant you or gain you great changes relationally. So I want to give you four things this morning uh, about this issue of mercy. Uh, it's, just, it's just one word, uh, no sentence, just, just one word for each. And the first one is this, generosity. If we could just come to that place and be generous, generous with forgiveness, generous with love, generous with mercy, generous with our time, Generous with our money, our resources. This is what Jesus said in Luke chapter 6, verse 37. He said, do not judge and you will not be judged. Do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Blessed are those, blessed are the merciful, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. 
You want to get mercy in your life? You want to receive mercy in your life? Then it comes to this place to where you start. It, start, it just starts with you. This is what Jesus is saying. And so he's encouraging us, guess what? To live lives of mercy, live lives of grace. To where we give grace, we give mercy, we give forgiveness. We, we give with our resources financially. We give with, with our time. And so you, when you read this passage, there's a lot of people say, oh, it says give, 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 give. But yet when you come to the end, he says, guess what? It will be given back to you. Blessed are those that are able to show mercy, for they will be shown mercy. And so when you look at this, you realize, and those of you that are givers, right, you know this. You cannot outgive God. Because there's some things financially or there's some things in your time will not make sense. When you're a giver, you absolutely cannot outgive him. It's what the scripture plays out over and over in, 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 in the word. But there's a counterfeit. Listen, we've got to understand this. There's a counterfeit to giving. And it's called greed. In other words, I give to get. That's not giving. You know what that is? That is getting. And true generosity is I give to give. True generosity, I just give to bless. I just give to give. God, listen, God doesn't bless giving. God blesses giving with the right heart, and God blesses giving with the right attitude. The counterfeit, listen, there's just counterfeits to every one of these that I'm going to give you. There's a counterfeit. So the counterfeit to generosity is simply this. I'm going to do something nice for you, and you better, respond, you better reciprocate. I'm going to do something nice for you, and you better respond in the way that I think you should. Guess what? That is not giving. That is control. That you are trying to control someone with your actions. You're trying to control someone with your money. Listen, I was, I was raised under that. And it's taken me years to get out from under how I was raised. My mom, my mom never really did anything nice for you. She did something nice for her. And so she would do something nice for you whether she would do a, a favor or she would do something nice or she would give you something. And if you did not respond back in the way that she thinks you should, where it didn't change your behavior, you didn't respond back and say or all these other things, all of a sudden my mom was angry and my mom was, was, was mad. And then we'd hear like shame language, like after all I've ever done for you, how could you treat me like this? After all I've given, after all I've done, and this is the thanks I get, that is, that is control. Jesus, uh, the Apostle John talked about this in 1 John three seventeen, and he said, If anyone has the world's goods and sees a fellow believer in need but withholds compassion from him, how does God's love reside in him? Little children, let us not love in word or speech, but what? In action and in truth. So this is why it's so easy to memorize this, bear, uh, this, this, this beatitude. It's so easy to like preach these principles, but it's another thing to love in action and truth, right? It's one thing to know the principles. It's one thing to know those things. It's another thing to put it in action. Mercy, when I look at mercy, mercy is pity and action. I mean, when you encounter someone in need, Someone that's hurting, someone that's going through a difficult time, how, how, do, how do you react? When you see the needs of a church, how, how do you react? Does it move you to action? Mercy, listen, mercy just doesn't sympathize. It identifies in needs and acts. This is what Jesus said in, in, in Matthew 25, verse 35. He says, for I was hungry and you gave me something to eat and I was thirsty 
And you gave me something to drink, and I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you took care of me. I was in prison. You visited me. Then the righteous will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in or without clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them and say, truly, I tell you, Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did it for me. And one of the ways that we express our mercy is through our giving and our giving through the local church. Because that's where ministry happens, but it's also how we show mercy on a personal basis. Just coming alongside of someone and helping open our, our house for someone or buying a meal for someone or just listening to someone and just ministering to them. These are all expressions of, of mercy. And so when you look at Jesus' ministry, you realize Jesus was always showing mercy to the least of these. He was always showing mercy to those in need. So the first one is generosity, but the second one is just one word. It's just sensitivity. It's just coming to this place to where you're sensitive to the needs, the pains, the hurts, the issues of others, of those around you. Remember when, when, when Jesus told a parable about a man, and he was like robbed on the, on the way to Jericho, it's the Maus Road. It's the road that goes between Jerusalem and, and Jericho. I've actually, you know, and it goes through, like it goes through the, the valley of the shadow of death. And so just about a few months ago, I was there, and we stood at the valley of the shadow of death, and you could see the Emmaus Road. You could see this road. You can still hike this road today. fact is, that's one of my goals. That's one of my bucket lists. I want to I walk the Jericho Road. I want to walk that road. And everybody knew that you walked that road. It was the only road you could go that you're probably going to be robbed. You're probably going to be mugged. And so Jesus is telling this parable, this story about a man, a Gentile that was on the Jericho Road. He gets robbed. He gets beat up. You know, they strip him of his clothes. They, they take his possessions. And then all of a sudden, three men uh, come walking down the road, right? You know the story. The priest and the, and, and the, and the Levite. Uh, the priest and the Levite comes, and, and all of a sudden they all of a sudden they see this man, and and he's you know he's beaten and he's robbed, and and for whatever reason the priest and the Levite, you know what they do? They change to the other side of the road. Now we don't know why. We don't know if the robbers were still there. We don't know if they were worried about getting hurt or harmed. We don't know if they had an important business meeting or a, or a plane to catch or something like that. But but mercy, mercy allows. Listen, mercy in your life and mercy in my life allows God to like interrupt your schedule and meet a need. And so for whatever reason, we don't know why, but the priest and the Levite, they change to the other side of the road. And then this Samaritan comes, and he sees this same man, same situation. But this man stops, and he's, he, be, he begins to help. And so let me, let me just help you with, 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 with something this morning. So when you see a crisis... When you see a, a friend in crisis, when you see someone going through difficulty, you're going to have one or two. You're going to have one or two emotional responses, distress or empathy. So you see distress with the priest and the Levite. Distress will always lead you to say, you know what? I'm going I'm to go to the other side of the road. I'm going to avoid. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to say. Distress will always lead you to like, like, get to the side of the road. Empathy. That's what the Samaritan had. Empathy will always lead you, will always lead you to get involved. And so let me ask you a question. Just let me ask you a question. When, when, when you have a friend that goes through a crisis, whether they have a terminal illness or they, they, they have to start taking chemo or they have a surgery coming up, they go through a divorce, they, 
They lose a relationship. They lose a job. And all of a sudden, you have a friend that goes through a traumatic event, and they're going through a difficult time. Distress happens. Distress happens when we begin to avoid them because we just don't know what to say. And that's a legitimate response. I'm just here to tell you that that is a legitimate response. It, it happened to me. And so when, when, when a few years back, when our daughter was, was diagnosed with a, with a very severe brain tumor, I have a close friend, a pastor, and we've helped him. He knows my family. He's been with my family. And when word came to him that, that Brittany was diagnosed with this, I didn't hear from him. It hurt. I did not hear from him. And about four to five months into this whole thing, in fact, is when I call, he wouldn't even return my phone call. And so I, I was confused by that. I didn't understand. And so about four or five months into this, all of a sudden, I got the most healing text from him, and it was probably the most honest and transparent text. And he texted me, and he said, Hey, Charlie, so sorry I've avoided you. So sorry I haven't communicated with you. Dot, dot, dot. I just don't know what to say. This legit. That's real, right? And I, I, I called him immediately and said, hey, it's okay. I don't know what to say either. Man, I don't, there are no magic words. And we talked about this issue. So, so distress is what comes into your life to where all of a sudden you, you want to avoid. But, but the Samaritan had a different set of emotion. Maybe he worked through his distress. And then he worked down to empathy and, and, he, and, and he got involved. And so he stops and he, he closes this guy and he bandages him up and he puts him in his car and he takes him into town and he checks him into the, like the Holiday Inn Express and gave him his, his credit card and said, whatever his medical bills are, whatever his food mail, bills are, whatever he needs, I'll, I'll pay for it. See, when you look at this, empathy leads you to get involved. But there's a counterfeit. There's a counterfeit to mercy. And I, boy, I hope we can understand this more. And there's a counterfeit to, to mercy. And that is when somebody looks at you and says, hey, You'll get through this. I believe in you. You, you. you will get through this. That is a counterfeit to mercy. You know what mercy is? We'll get through this together. I don't know what to say. I don't have the answer, but I tell you what, we'll figure it out together. How stronger would marriages and relationships be? is to where we looked at each other and says, hey, we'll get through this together, baby. I mean, we'll figure this out. We will figure this out. You do not have to go through this alone. You do not have to go through this situation alone. And the priest and the Levites, see, the reason they had distress, they were worried how this would affect them. The Samaritan worried how this would affect the guy that was robbed, the guy that was struggled. And when Jesus came down to the end of the parable, right, he says, so who's the neighbor? And they said, well, the Samaritan the Samaritan's neighbor. And then Jesus gave us his command and says, well, go and do, do likewise. We are surrounded. Listen, I'm telling you. We are surrounded by people that it may not be aware of what they're going through, but they're hurting. Maybe it's an emotional thing. Maybe it's something in their past. Maybe they're going through distress. Maybe they're going through problems. And maybe, maybe the life has just been sucked out of them. And maybe their wounds aren't as obvious as like the guy that was beaten up on the side of the road. And it's so easy. It's so easy for us to look out for number one and, and just continue on. 
it's kind of a funny story, but there's this lady that, that told the story that all of a sudden she got a call on her cell phone, and, and she looked at her cell phone. She didn't recognize the number, but she says, you know, I'll take a chance. Maybe it's not a, a scam call. I'll, I'll, you know what, I'll, I'll answer. So she said hello, and on the other end was a lady, and the lady started talking immediately. And the lady says, hey, I know you're going through a, busy, uh, I know you're going through a painful time. I know you're going through a hurtful time. No worries. I'm here for you. I'm headed over to your house now. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to clean your house, and then I'm going to fix you and your husband uh, dinner. And then once the meal is prepared, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave so that you guys can have a quiet evening. I'm here for you. And she says, by the way, what time does, does, does Bill get home from work? And the, the lady looked at her, uh, answered her kind of confused and says, Bill? He goes, yeah, Bill, your husband. You know, my, my husband's not Bill. My husband's John. And the lady goes, oh, no, I have, I have the wrong phone number. I am so sorry. I have the wrong phone number. To which the other lady said, are you still coming over? I mean, are you still coming over to cook and clean and fix me milk? Because that would, that would, like, really help. And when you look at this issue, you realize that, that there can be people around you. Remember, remember the story in the Bible about Zacchaeus? And Zacchaeus lived in Jericho, and you can still go and see the tree that Zacchaeus, like, went up in, and you can see how it had, had these branches that, that came out would be easy to sit on. And so Jesus was, like, coming through town. And so Zacchaeus was, you know, a couple of things about Zacchaeus. He was a tax collector, so his profession was despised. Nobody in their time, because they would, like, like take advantage of people. And, and so they didn't show mercy. So nobody liked tax collectors. And, and not only that, that he was, he was short, and so he wouldn't be able to see over the crowd. And so he didn't have an influential position in the community like a lot of his friends. Jesus is passing through, so Jesus is passing through. And so Zacchaeus got up in the tree, which was totally socially unacceptable. It wasn't even, you shouldn't even do that, stuff like that. And Zacchaeus wanted to see Jesus, so Zacchaeus is in the tree. And, Z and Jesus comes by, and Jesus notices him and calls him by name. I wonder what that did for Zacchaeus. And can I tell you this morning, God knows your name. And he knows what you're going through right now. And he calls his name and says, Zacchaeus, come down. I want to have a word with you. And Zacchaeus was transformed. This is crazy. Look at this. It's just the end of the, of the story in Luke chapter 19, verse 8. It says, but Zacchaeus stood there and said to the Lord, Lord, I will, I will give half of my possessions to the poor. Um, and if I've extorted uh, anything from anyone, I will pay back four times as much. And all of a sudden, Zacchaeus was transformed. And he says he was a person of mercy. Person of mercy because he was in relationship with Christ. The third thing that if we could change, just this issue of patience. If we could just come to this place, just this issue of patience. And listen, patience has a counterfeit, and it's apathy to where I'm just not going to do nothing. I'm just going to turn my head. Look at in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1 and 2. Paul is talking to the church about how to handle this stuff. And it says, brothers and sisters, if someone is overtaken in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual, restore such a person with a gentle spirit. Mercy. Watching out for yourselves so that you also won't be tempted. Carry one another's burdens, carrying what they cannot carry on their own. Come alongside of them. In this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. So let me ask you, in this area of mercy, in this area of patience, what is your reaction when somebody falls? When a Christian sins? When someone makes a mistake, what is your first reaction? When someone is caught in an affair, or someone uh, has a DUI, or, or someone loses their job because of something they did, someone commits a crime, or someone gossips, someone slanders, someone, someone lies, or, 
or, or when you disagree with a, with, a, with, a, with a pastor, you disagree with a, with a Christian, what, what is your first reaction? How do, you re, how do you respond? Do you tend to just quickly condemn? Do you tend to quickly just judge? One man once said that, that, that we tend to judge others by their faults, but we judge ourselves by our intentions. That's why you hear people say, I didn't intend to hurt you. I didn't mean that the way you took it. And so what happens is we tend to judge others by their actions, by what they say, by their faults. But when we come to ourselves, we give ourselves a lot of grace. We cut ourselves some slack. Well, that wasn't my intentions. Mercy is this issue to where we're not quick to judge and we're not quick to condemn. That we understand that, guess what, even as believers, we're going to disagree. And even as believers, people are going to sin and people are going to make mistakes. Not one of us, not one of us are perfect. Remember John chapter 8 with the woman that was caught in adultery and the Pharisees? Man, the Pharisees didn't care about her. She was a tool that they were using. They were using this woman to try to trap Jesus, right? Jesus is in the square. And Jesus is teaching. They catch this woman in the act of adultery. Most theologians think they'd even put clothes back on the woman because they wanted to humiliate her. They wanted to trap Jesus. They bring this woman in front of Jesus. They throw this woman at his feet. They interrupt the church service. And they look at Jesus and says, hey, the law of Moses. Now, they didn't care anything about the law of Moses. They didn't care anything about this lady. They just want to trap Jesus. She was a tool. And they said, hey, the law of Moses says if someone is caught in the act of adultery, they should be stoned. What do you say? And Jesus responded by first, he, he knelt down. And he started writing in the sand. He started writing in the dirt. A lot of theologians argue over what he did, what he was writing. And so some believe, some believe, you know what, he was just simply writing the names of the men who had been with her who was condemning her. Some believe he was writing the Ten Commandments. And some of it gives weight because at the end it says the men left from the oldest to the youngest. The oldest had led enough of life to know they weren't perfect. And so Jesus, when they ask him, the law of Moses said we should stone her. What do you say? Jesus responded and said, stone her. But ye who is without sin, you cast, you cast the first stone. And he knelt down back in the dirt and he started, started writing again. He waited for everyone to leave. They laughed, the oldest to the youngest. And he looked at the woman and he said, who, who condemns you? And she said, no one. And he says, well, neither do I. Why is it, believers, that we are so quick to pick up rocks? And we are so quick to pick up stones. Just as soon as someone hurts us, just as soon as someone makes a decision we disagree with, just as soon as someone sins, just as soon as we don't restore them gently, we restore them with rocks. See, the goal is we don't gloss over sin and we don't excuse sin. I get that. Jesus didn't either. Jesus held, uh, treated her with compassion and mercy and then told her, guess what? Go and what? Sin no more. So we don't gloss over the sin, but it's the way that we restore them. See, when we restore people with rocks, well, one, we never restore them. Because you know what happens when we restore people with rocks in our family or wherever? We can damage them to the core to where they're no longer the same. Because they know what it's like to be beat up. They know what it's like to be harmed. They know what it's like to be treated without grace and mercy. This issue of shame language, a lot of people use shame language, and I, I think they don't even know what they're saying, but they're just bringing shame to the individual. 
And when you use shame language, in other words, that you, that you say you're a bad person because, or you have bad character because, to where we don't understand there's a difference between actions and character and action and some of those other things, and so we use shame language. And we attack people. And we attack them like, you're a bad person because you made that decision. You're a, you're a worthless Christian, but how do you call yourself a Christian if you did that or you said that? And we use shame language. Listen, shame language will make people feel worthless and small. And whether it's in the family with children or whether it's in adults, when shame language is used, people respond one or two ways. They either shrink back. And they no longer respond. It's called learned hopelessness to where they come to the place and say, no matter what, I'm just a bad person. No matter what, I'm a failure. No matter what, I'm a worthless Christian. And as a result of that, it's learned hopelessness to where they come to the place and say, no matter what, no matter what. Or they respond in, in anger. One or, one or two ways. And when you look at this, mercy doesn't mean that we simply say, uh, your sin is like no big deal. But we're willing to come alongside them in grace and mercy and kindness and help them. And we see this all through the scriptures. The fourth and the last thing is this that, that we have to put in place. is just this issue of forgiveness. The counterfeit is just easy to forgiveness. It's unforgiveness. And I think this is really where this sermon gets difficult. Mercy is sometimes hard because of unforgiveness. And depending on what you have in the past, whether there's a parent that was difficult or abused you or someone hurt you in your past or business partner took advantage of you or spouse left you, divorced you or hurt you or someone betrayed you, took advantage of you, and then all of a sudden you begin nursing those, those grudges and nursing those hurts and your unwillingness to forgive and and when that comes up in your life, when you're nursing those things, the last thing you want to hear is about this issue of just forgiveness. Wherein Jesus told this parable in Matthew chapter 18, it was about this king, and he had a man uh, that owed him about $6 million. And so he found this man, he drug him into his court, he, he told this man that, that, he was, uh, that, 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 that he owed him $6 million and he needed to pay him or he was going to throw him in jail. And so this man begged him and says, you know what? Um, uh, I'll, I'll pay it back. If you'll just give me time, I'll pay it back. Just please, I'm so sorry, I'll pay it back. And this was an amount that this man could never pay back. When you look at the average wage of their day, there's no way he could pay back $6 million, but yet he said he could. The king had compassion on him. The king forgave this man. And this man left there, and this man remembered that there was this guy out there that owed him 20 bucks that hadn't paid him back. Remember, he had been forgiven of like much, $6 million. So he goes and he finds this man, and he begins to choke him, and he says, pay me back what you owe. Pay me my 20 bucks. And the man said the same thing that this man had said to the king. He said, if you will give me time, I'll pay you back. Just give me a few weeks. Give me a month. Wait till payday. Whatever. I'll pay you back. And the $20 amount was actually an amount that this man could repay. And this man said, no, I want it now. And all of a sudden, the king heard about that. He, he brought the man in that he had forgiven of the $6 million debt, a debt that he could not pay. And he said, because of your unforgiveness, I am throwing you in jail. For why? For your torment. I'm telling you, unforgiveness, 
You put yourself in, in a jail of unforgiveness that brings you torment. That's why, look, Matthew chapter 18, 35. So also my heavenly Father will do to, to, to you unless every one of you forgives his brother or sisters from your heart. I think that may be the second most difficult line in the Lord's Prayer. The first one is, not my will, but your will. The second one is this. Father, forgive me. Forgive me of my sins as I forgive those who have sinned against me. Listen, this is the most dangerous prayer for you or I to pray when we're nursing a grudge, when we have unforgiveness in our heart. That's why Paul in Ephesians remind us, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32, and be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as God also forgave you of a debt that you could not pay. Mercy that will forgive has great power in your life. It has great power in your relationships. It, I'm telling you, it is tied to your happiness meter. Happiness will always be a serious problem for you if you cannot forgive. Because you will be in this jail of torment. I was reminded of this a, a while back, and it's just kind of a dumb story, but it, it helps illustrate this. And it's dumb because of my actions. But we were in a staff meeting. We did an all-day all staff meeting, and we had our, our big whiteboard that, that I just love and up, and we rolled it into the room. And, I mean, it's a big whiteboard. And so um, I, had, I had made a horrible mistake. I didn't realize it. When I left my office, I knew I was probably going to write some things on the, on, the, on, the, uh, on the whiteboard. And throughout our day-long meeting, had staff members jot stuff, stuff down on the whiteboard and and then, it and then I wanted to write some stuff, and I wanted to write a lot of stuff. And so I reached in my backpack, but I, I, I brought the wrong markers. I grabbed my Sharpies instead of the dry erase markers. And I started writing. I'm like writing away, and I mean, I filled up that thing. I mean, we're, we're working through this, and I got different colors up there and everything else. And then all of a sudden, I needed to erase something. And I picked up the dry eraser, and I did like that, and it was like still there. It didn't even budge. And so I did it again, I did it again, and I looked down, and I'm like, oh, no. It's like in front of the whole staff. I'm like, oh, no. I used a Sharpie. And I was so thankful. They extended grace to me. There were, there were some memes that came out afterwards. <laughs> but at that moment, at that moment, and I'm like, what are we going to do? I don't know. I go, I don't know how we're going to get this out. And then Lisa on staff says, you guys aren't going to believe this. I just saw on the Google that you can actually get a Sharpie out of a dry erase board. And so you take a dry erase marker and you mark over the Sharpie mark and something about the chemical in the dry erase marker will dissolve the chemical in the Sharpie and then you erase it out. And then all of a sudden, you know what? It became a staff exercise. We, we're all up there. And then before long, that, that whole dry erase board looks brand new again. I'll tell you what. I think that's a lot like my sins. There was a time when my white board of my life was filled with sins, written in a sharpie. And when I accepted Christ, it was the blood of Christ that took all of those marks away to where my white board is white and clean again. Brand new. Looks like it's never been marked on. Why, if God has done that for me, 
and taking care of debt that I could not pay, why wouldn't I extend grace and mercy and forgiveness to someone else? Jesus said this. The greatest act of love, and actually the proof, one of the proofs that we're a believer, is that we can extend grace and mercy to even people we radically disagree with. There's something powerful about that. Would you bow your heads with me and close your eyes?